I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we welcome a very special guest. Steve Lamar is the Executive Vice President of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. He represents the AAFA members before Congress and the administration on a range of trade issues. We'll ask Steve how the Trump administration's tariffs are affecting his industry. So buckle your seatbelts. We'll discuss all that, plus President Trump's big meeting with Xi Jinping, and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Steve Lamar joins us. He's the executive vice president of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. Steve, I am known to purchase a lot of American apparel and footwear. So I didn't notice a truck that you brought with things for me. So like, what's going on here, man? I apologize for that, but I, I see you're all you're all very fashionably dressed. Yeah, so straight guys are fashionable. We did that on purpose, knowing that you were coming. I appreciate Most it. Most of what I'm wearing is Italian, though. To be honest with you, okay. Now that now that you didn't bring stuff for me, you know, okay. So anyway, no. but how much of your that's a good question. How much of your association is domestic manufacturing, and how much of it is imports? Well, we don't really divide between domestic manufacturing and imports. We divide between where the jobs are. We have about four million jobs that we create in the United States that we support. Um, which is which is interesting because this is an industry that is about 98% import penetration. So what that means is 98% of the stuff in your closet um, is going to be imported. Okay, so the apparel, the footwear, you know, the bags, everything else, a lot of that stuff's imported. Um, the amount of people that help convert those products from concept to consumer is about four million that are in the United States. So, so, so to be exact, one third of U.S. apparel imports came from China in 2018. That's some 28 billion. That's by value. If you look at it by volume, you get to about 42 percent. Okay. And another statistic: over 50 percent of U.S. footwear imports, six billion, came from China. Again, by value. If you look at volume, that number is about 69 percent. So, tell us, what do you do with the AAFA? As an association, we work on three three areas. One is brand protection to protect intellectual property. One is trade to make sure that goods can be traded across borders so we don't encounter trade barriers. And the last one is supply chain and manufacturing to make sure that there's responsible uh, production activities that we can uh, make sure that the product safety is, uh, is paid attention to, garments and shoes are made in a sustainable manner, uh, things like that. And that, that last area, the supply chain and manufacturing, is probably the most evolutionary one because every, every day you're doing stuff better than you did the day before. And then next week and next year, it'll be better than what you did today. All right. So everybody who knows me knows that I'm a brand guy. I think about branding. I think about mm -hmm. media all day long. But I know that your companies that you represent, your your job is not to talk about their brands. Your your job is a bit broader than that. Today, we're not going to be talking about the companies that you represent per se. We're going to be talking more about the product. So Correct. instead of talking about a specific manufacturer of jeans, we're going to be talking about blue jeans. Explain why that is. What you find in our industry is we're able to make, maintain these jobs, 4 million jobs. They're, they're good paying jobs. They're really in, in all areas of our supply chain. 
because we have these global supply chains. We have these global value chains is what we refer to them. And this means that you're, you're producing products all around the world in the place where those countries have the most competitive advantage to make them. And then that allows us to focus on the stuff where we can have the most competitive advantage. And when we, I was actually on the Hill yesterday and somebody was talking about how, you know, we don't have a lot of factories and factories are sexy. People want to talk about factories. And we countered and said, geez, you know, but we have a lot of other things. We've got these great design jobs and these, inf- and these um, IT jobs right. and these very high paying jobs, jobs that require education, that require very specialized skill sets. They're very much in demand in our industry. And those jobs exist here in the United States because we're able to produce products all around the world in places where it makes the most sense. To, to produce so break, break down the four million. Is, does this count retail? It counts retail, but it also counts the the, the designers, the um, customs compliance people, the product safety compliance people, um, the all the folks that are in the headquarters, um, the people that are um, doing the branding to, to, that really make sure that you know as you, as you think about it, producing a product that goes from we you know say from concept to consumer, right? All those things, all those steps that go into it. There's people involved. It's not like you wake up and all of a sudden there's clothes in your your closet. You know, stuff has to happen in order for them to get to you in order it, for them to be It developed. is interesting that you point to this bias. And I, I noticed it a lot in talking to members of Congress over the year. It's making things is somehow a superior activity. Uh, but in fact, the, the, a lot of the jobs throughout the supply chains are very beneficial. I always point out to people that in, the, say, 50 years ago, the Ford Motor Company made it, its, its vehicles in maybe 10, 15 locations in the United States, but in every little town, the richest guy in town was the Ford dealer, mm-hmm. okay? Well, he didn't, or she didn't make cars, okay? But those dealership was incredibly valuable, and uh, and and the retail business adds immense value to what the consumer gets. So 50 years ago, I might have been in a factory, and I was in my office in the factory, right above the factory floor. I was considered a factory job, okay? And then over time, my company expanded, and maybe I moved to a building across the street. So the factory is on one side of the street. I'm on the other side of the street. I'm still doing the exact same thing I was doing before supervising it. Over time, the factory then moves to another place. My office is still located there. I'm adding other jobs in there. I'm still doing the same thing, but now I no longer have a factory job. I might be doing literally the same kinds of activities, but I'm no longer classified as a factory job because I'm not physically in the factory, even though I control production. Well, see, I don't understand this. What's less glamorous? I mean, there's a very memorable scene in the David Simon show, The Wire, where uh, the the head of the the docks in Baltimore, Frank Zabatka, says, we used to make things in this country. Well, maybe we don't make as many things now, but we design things in this country. Isn't that glamorous? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. I mean, we and we we look at making things as you are making all of those decisions that allow the thing to come to creation. I mean, someone's right. got to order the cotton. Someone's got to figure out where the cotton gets planted. Someone's got to figure out what kind of yarn spinning you're going to use, what kind of fabric production you're going to use, mm-hmm. where the zippers and buttons are going to come from. Scott has a great presentation about how he tells you how all the things that go into making a tie and how all the logistics and how a tie actually comes together. This is awesome. I'd love to hear it at some point. Well, you know, you can go to the Trade Guys microsite okay. to find this. It's, yes. it's on video. It's a, way, it's a way to describe rules of origin, but you talk about how value gets added. 
Okay. And, and that even things we take, we think are simple, like a necktie, are actually quite complicated products. They're made of a lot of different pieces. There's a lot of people involved in it from, from design and invention, uh, all the way through to, to, uh, to selling and, and delivering to the consumer. So, absolutely. Wanna, let's go back to manufacturing again, because I don't, I don't agree with Andrew. I think we're making more stuff than ever. We're just doing it with fewer workers. Well, there's that too. You look at a you look at a textile facility. So we make a lot of textiles in the United States. So by this I mean yarns and fabrics, and and those uh, used to be much more labor intensive than they are right now. I mean the big thing about textiles is where's the water going to come from, the electricity, the the is the production process sustainable. Those are the questions that we need to solve when you make textiles in the United States right now. Not how many people you employ. There's a joke about that, you know. That the modern textile factory has only two workers, a man and a dog. And the man's job is to feed the dog, and the dog's job is to keep the man away from the machines. <laughs> well, if you've ever been to a sock plant, it kind of looks like that. I mean, socks are as... That's not a very good joke. Capital... Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I we always just, liked it. We were just going to let it lie there, Andrew. It's okay. It's okay. I but, thought it was funny. I, I yeah. mean, there's better trade guy humor than that. I'm just going to say, you know, we, we've had better humor. <laughs> yeah, but socks look like a, a, a an advanced chemical plant almost. It's right. a, a, almost very very little actual labor is part of the value added of making a sock. It's highly mechanized, and so we we don't we just don't recognize these processes. Yeah, but you also look at the you look at the socks that are on the market today. Yes. And there are these, you know, brightly colored socks, you know, the... Oh, and the performance know, fabrics, the, the the weaves of the yarn itself that delivers, you know, uh, well, other support or... And or, you're also buying socks for specific activities. Sure. You know, you're not just buying, you know, white socks anymore. You're buying socks for basketball. I am basketball, currently so. wearing brightly color, colored socks. You they, have awesome socks. And they were made in the United States, right. actually. Yep. Those, those yes. look like them. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, there is sock production in the United States, though. Yes. It's one of, it's got, one of the sectors. We've got all kinds of colors. We've got blue. We've got azure. We've got all kinds of stuff going is this on guy, Is this trade guy endorsed uh, legwear? Hey, absolutely. Good. Absolutely. I appreciate that. It has the trade guy legwear stamp of approval, indeed. And that might be something that we turn to you and your companies to uh, manufacture and get the AAFA stamp of approval for our kiosk upstairs at CSIS, we will be creating to sell Trade Guy merchandise. Okay. We're on you it. You heard it first. Yes. We're on it. We may be a nonprofit, but we're not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So tell us, Steve, today, these days, right now, with all that's going on with trade, what is your primary mission on behalf of your membership? What are you, what are you spending all your time doing? So I'm going to give you a couple of numbers and then and then explain why those matter. So the first two sets of numbers are 98 and 95. And 98 is the percentage of apparel and footwear that's, as I mentioned before, that's in our closet um, that's imported. So we make some stuff here in the United States, but not a lot. Um, and 95 is the percentage of people on the planet who wear clothes and shoes um, who live outside of our borders. Some would say 96, so 95, 96. And when you look at those two numbers, 98 and 95, um, that tells you that if you want to be competitive in our industry, you need to have access to global suppliers and you need to have access to global customers. And it's really that simple. And uh, many of our members, their supply chains, they will thread, uh, pun intended, uh, through and, and across a lot of different countries. And those will change. Those supply chains will will grow and die over time. You know, they will. The one I'm using for this year and next year and next season, I'll eventually change it as a new supplier comes online, and I got to change it. So that's one area. The other set of numbers to give you, and this is really where a lot of the focus is right now for us, is um, six and fifty-one. 
So six is the percentage of imports um, that we import in the United States that my members represent. So textiles, apparel, footwear, travel goods, we represent about 6% of, of all, all the imports. Everything the United States yeah, imports, so all $2 trillion. Dollars. You count food and tables and automobiles and petroleum and everything else, we represent 6% of that by value. In 2017, we represented 51% of all the duties that were collected by the US government. So 6% of the imports, but 51% of the duties. How is that possible? Because we still pay the very high tariffs, the very high duties that were imposed um, by the folks that were running this town in 1930, you know, under the Smoot-Hawley, Hawley-Smoot tariff legislation. Those are still largely in effect for our industry. And so 6 and 51. So one of the things we try to do is to get those duties reduced, find opportunities, whether it's through trade policy or through other activities, to reduce those policy, to reduce those duties, because those tariffs are taxes that are paid by U.S. consumers ultimately. When I was working on the Hill, the first thing I did in trade was I was working for Senator Hines from Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. was work on footwear protection, sure, because Pennsylvania was the second or third largest footwear producing state in the country. And that was when we produced a lot of footwear. Yep. Uh, and it's all gone. So tariffs didn't make any difference, right? Well, tariffs tariffs made a difference. I think some of the footwear companies would argue it made a difference in very specific pockets. I mean, there are companies that will say that because of the tariffs that are existing on certain lines that that still support them and and they they do produce in the United States behind that tariff wall. But for most of the industry, and by most I mean 98% of the industry, those the the fact that there are still very high tariffs simply just means a cost that gets added to the sure. price that the consumers ultimately yeah, and pay. Over the years of multilateral trade negotiations, say from 1947 to the mid-1990s, what you had were American industries, like the high technology industries at the time, and chemicals, machine tools, those kinds of things, were very interested in a global market. And so in trade negotiations, they were happy to drop U.S. tariffs in return for lower tariffs abroad because they had a, an international view, while in light industrials, which which would char characterize sure. most of the apparel and footwear business, the light industries were subject to import competition, even in the 50s and 60s. And and their their idea for tariff negotiation is to keep our tariffs high right. and to keep the jobs here. So there really was a, a split in the industry, so to speak, that led to, and you can see it today in the tariff schedule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the tariff schedule, you will find that there are these very high tariff peaks for textiles, apparel, footwear. Um, you know, for some footwear, it can get as high as 67 percent um, that you pay for a you know small children's shoe. Um, for apparel, it can get up to thirty-two percent. You know, for things like you know synthetic, you know active wear garments, that can be thirty-two percent. And if we had Ed Gresser here mm -hmm. now at USTR, he could explain in great detail why some of the highest tariffs are on. Uh, the the cheapest goods and really work against the poor people. Right, tariffs. It's it's a it's a classically regressive tax where uh, an individual that's got that's got less income, a greater percentage of their of their available spend, the amount of money that they spend, um, is going towards clothing. And if you've got a tax on those products, then they're paying a higher percent. The second thing that happens is. And again, this is probably more of an accident of the way the tariffs were created. But um, a lot of times, the uh, when you have a product that can come in at a specific price point, you know, so if it's ten dollars or less, it's this tariff. If it's eleven to twenty dollars, it's this tariff. Those price points, as you get higher and higher, the tariff rate drops. So you are charging a higher 
tariff on the lower on the price point stone. item. Can you say a few words about tariff engineering and this new thing that has sprung up? Well, it's not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. Well, but can you first say what tariff, tariff engineering he'll, he'll, is? Thank you, Andrew. He will yeah. explain. <laughs> so tariff engineering is when you design a product specifically to um, meet a tariff classification. And the reason you're doing that is because the tariff classifications are different for different products. So if you add a, a pocket on a dress below you know, a certain point in the garment, then that will allow you to have a different tariff um, rate, a lower tariff rate. Well, a classic example is this, is that if you've got a garment that is chief weight cotton, um, that tends to be in the 16% range. And if you have a garment that's chief weight, uh, so the, the majority of the weight is a synthetic, that'll be in the 32%. So if I've got a 5149 garment, then that will, that where fifty one is um, is the synthetic and forty nine is the cotton, then that'll be a higher tariff rate than if I have a forty nine fifty one where I put the forty nine for the synthetic and fifty one for cotton. So it really affects decision making on the garment itself. It makes decision making so that's so companies that have been able to get this that do this really well, they bring their designers in with their customs um, executives from the very beginning to figure out what kinds of features are they going to include on this so they can see whether they can take advantage of a lower tariff rate. I bet the designers can get a little annoyed with, you know, accountants telling them, hey, you know, you got to put an extra pocket on that thing or we're going to pay more for well, it. Well, what, what actually gets more complicated than that because what happens now, um, and this is a good thing, is designers are are – working with a whole team of people. I mean, we want designers to produce um, items that are sustainably produced, right? So they can either be recycled, if, if it's a close-the-loop conversation, to make sure that you aren't bringing into your product a, either a product safety violation or a violation of some other compliance issues. There's a, a whole host of, of requirements that we have to follow, conflict minerals. I mean, they can go on and on. Um, but you need to make sure that the designers are aware of that. So as they're designing the product, that they are, aren't inadvertently tripping up one of these other requirements that are there. And that's one of the reasons we have so many jobs in our industry because it's so complicated to, to make this. Keep track of all this. Absolutely. Yeah. A now, lot of what happens in a free trade area like the NAFTA or better yet, what's going to happen when USMCA in your industry? How does that help or hurt uh, this kind of product? Uh, well, let me let me just start with saying that NAFTA, so the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, is a good agreement. You know, we've we have long supported it. Um, it supports a couple hundred thousand jobs in sure. the textile, apparel, footwear industry, um, and the supply chain. Uh, and we talked about blue jeans earlier. Um, you know, a, a, a typical supply chain might look like, you know, you you um, harvest the cotton in Texas. That cotton is sent to Alabama, where it's spun into yarn. It's it's then sent to um, North Carolina, woven into fabric. Mm -hmm. That fabric is shipped down to Mexico. Alongside with that, you're sending down buttons and rivets from you know states like Georgia and Tennessee and so forth. You're, you're sending down labels, other things that go into a pair of jeans. All that's assembled in Mexico, and then it's brought back up to the United States. So you've got sort of this phenomenal two-way trade supply chain where we're exporting um, we're exporting the materials down, we're adding value, we're, we're assembling the finished product, maybe doing the finishes, finishes and other things, and then bringing this product back up to the United States. Um, that's made possible because of, of NAFTA. The USMCA will keep that going. Uh, we'll still okay. have that. Um, that's assuming the USMCA actually Gets approved by Congress. It's implemented, right? And implemented and so forth. But you know, one of the things we asked for with the USMCA was keep it trilateral, which I think we succeeded. 
we wanted to make sure that no harm got done. In other words, they, you didn't unwind any of the supply chain, which was largely accomplished. And then we're now looking for seamless to make sure that it is seamlessly implemented from the NAFTA to the USMCA. And the jury is still out on that one. Why was trilateral important? Is there a lot of cross-border with uh, traffic with Canada? Yeah, we actually make stuff in the United States and export to Canada. We make stuff in Canada uh, that gets combined with materials in the U.S. and shipped to Mexico. So there's a lot of supply chains that go. And what would happen? You know, one of the one of the rumors, one of the landmines we've talked about toward USMCA uh, implementation is if the president decides to jam the Congress and withdraw or announce that he's withdrawing right. from existing NAFTA and basically tell the Congress, you know, you take my new one or you get nothing. What would happen to you guys if there were nothing, if there were no agree- if there were no NAFTA of any kind? Would all this unravel or would it just continue? Uh, and I appreciate you said the word unravel. Uh, we always appreciate the industry metaphors. The the um, that was accidental, but okay. It, we've we, had we've had unravel. We've had seamless. Thread. We've had thread. Oh, yeah. we, there's a lot yeah. going on in this podcast. We've got that, some time left. Yeah, still. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it would be a, a huge problem. I mean, you would first of all, uh, you know, the thing we always look at an agreement like NAFTA is is it's really going to answer a fundamental question. Are we going to be making products in Mexico using U.S. content, U.S. Yes. yarns and fabrics, or are we going to be making them in other places where we don't use that U.S. content? So if you no longer have the NAFTA, then the incentive to produce close to the United States and Mexico evaporates, goes away immediately. And so then companies that are doing that they they may still do that and figure out a way to make that work, but largely the numbers aren't going to work. And so you're going to see them migrate to perhaps other free trade agreement partners like right. CAFTA, Central America, or they may just move to Asia where they won't use that U.S. content. So the big loser in that will be the U.S. textile industry. And that's one of the reasons actually why the Textile um, Industry Association was one of the first entities to endorse the USMCA. I mean, they they came out of the box very, very early on and said they want to see that approved. You normally don't see that. Normally, they come to agreements very late in the game. They came very early, and we give them high marks for that. And they're big where? Southeast, right? Yeah, United States? I, I think, yeah. You know, So cotton is pretty much throughout the South. Um, Southeast is a traditional uh, textile yarn, again, yarn fabric production. Um, but they'll have members that are really throughout the United States, as do we. I mean, it's you know the industry isn't really as concentrated in one location as it used to no, be. No, it is scattered. One of my favorite statistics, when I was working for Senator Hines, uh, Back in the in the eighties, everybody thought Pennsylvania steel state, right. you know, big deal. Catch up state. The cat, well, we didn't talk about that because that would have been a conflict of interest. Oh yeah, of course. I can tell you a funny story about that. About uh, oh, the, I want to hear it. Well, I'll digress for a moment. We were visited by a guy in um, Wilkesbury mm-hmm. who had invested a lot of money in tomato canning equipment, and I learned a lot about this. It turns out that you can can most anything with regular canning equipment, beans, corn, peas. But for tomatoes, you can't because of the high water content. You need special equipment. So he had invested a lot of money in um, special canning equipment for uh, tomatoes. And right after he did it, he discovered that the Italians started importing or exporting to the United States large amounts of, of canned tomatoes, tomato paste, and other you know, Italian products. And he came down to us to talk about relief. And what could we do for him? I'd make a trade case to help him, you know, deal with the, the I think they, he accused the, the, these were allegedly subsidized uh, tomatoes coming in. 
And we agonized about this, but in the end told him, you know, asking John Hines to save the tomato industry is yeah, about probably. the clearest conflict of interest you could finally There's you could a ever headline find. That writes itself. Yeah. Go, to, go talk to Arlen Inspector. That's right. She'll help you. Right, right. But getting back to the statistic, what always struck me is that people thought of Pennsylvania as steel or ketchup. In fact, the largest manufacturing employer in Pennsylvania at the time was the apparel industry. Right. Yeah, they've got. A they're bit, all gone now, but or most of them are gone. Well, now, most but. of them. There's still there's still um, apparel. There's textiles, um, footwear in Pennsylvania. I mean, they they really exist all throughout the United States. It's not concentrated in any one um, state like the way you used to think of it, because it is it is an industry that is supported by these global value chains. You know, these. Well, that's a huge adaptation for right. the for every company in the Absolutely. supply chains. Oh, 100%. Because, because you move to these global global networks. Now you're doing, the, the thing you're doing in the United States are the high value added right. activities. So it all, it actually works out. Steve, let me ask you a question. So our viewers can't see this, of course, because they're listening, but on your very dapper suit today, you're wearing on, a, on your lapel, a lapel sticker that says tariffs are taxes. Why Why that sticker? So I just came from the hearings that are being held this week and next week. The um, The administration uh, has you know, proposed as sort of the most recent tranche of products to get tariffs in the uh, as in an effort to establish leverage over the Chinese government for these negotiations. They This is the big kahuna. This is what Donald Trump's talking about and he's going to meet with Xi Jinping at the G20 next week. The end next of next week. week and if they don't do this, this is going to be the most expensive dinner of all time. Yes, this is known as, as list four in uh, trade speak. Right. Really expensive ketchup for your state. It'll be $300 billion. Well, he gets hit harder than the ketchup people. We get hit a lot harder than the ketchup people. They broke this down into four lists. The first three lists are fully tariffed. That's about $250 billion. Um, we have some products that are on um, the third list, things like backpacks, um, uh, purses, gloves. Um, not only did they hit us in the wallet, but they literally hit our wallet too. Wallets are on that list as well. Which means that consumers get hit. Right. The consumers get hit. So the administration, f recognizing that these were consumer items. Yes. So when they first started out, they said, we don't want to touch consumer items. They have a- now You're talking backpacks. That means that in September or more to the point in August when everybody's getting ready to go back to school. Back to school, right. So you're going to, you know, when you go to Walmart, when you go to, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods, whatever, when you go get your backpack, you're going to pay- $10 more for your backpack, $20 more. We don't know. We don't know. It depends on the price point, but you could you could absolutely see price increases coming through or you could see, you know, companies not able to pass the prices on because the contracts are already written. You have to remember these tariffs that happened that 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 occur, they were at 10%. We went into the weekend uh, about a month and a half ago thinking that there was a trade deal going to happen any day now. I mean, if you remember this, there was a lot of a lot of optimism. The president was tweeting about this trade deal, and then 48 hours later, the president was tweeting that instead of a trade deal, he's instructed his people to ratchet the tariffs on backpacks from 10% to 25%. He gave us four days' notice, yeah. um, and then they and you know those contracts are written. Those contracts are already well, done. Well, in a previous episode, we talked about a small business right. who had placed an order for a very expensive machine to add to his his plant from China, and while the machine was on the water, the tariffs were applied. 
And no the way. lesson here is that it's not over till the orange man tweets. Tweets, correct. This is patented by Scott Miller. You heard it here first. Or you heard it on our last episode of The Trade Guys. Quote, it is not over till the orange man tweets. I think that's, I think that's what's going to be on the, on the first Trade Guys t-shirt. Yes, yeah. right. We can see merch from that one then, definitely. Yeah. But yeah. We'll talk a little bit more about who actually pays the tariffs and how does this work out when a assuming a whole bunch more of your stuff is going to get hit by the fourth tranche if the president does that. Well, the right? fourth the fourth tranche is basically everything else. There's a couple of, you know, items that have been that have been accepted, but it's largely everything else. So that is now we're talking about apparel, footwear, uh, home textiles, so things like blankets and sheets and, and Not things to mention like consumer electronics, and consumer luggage, electronics, all that. Toys. Well, luggage, toys. luggage was on the list. Oh, luggage was on, luggage list was on the previous list, right? Okay. So, so, right. So, this is basically, as you said, I think you said, the big kahuna. This gets to everything else. And that's why you have these hearings. There are seven days of hearings, about 320 or so witnesses. Uh, and I had some of my members that were in town uh, this um, today and this week, and they'll be in some tomorrow and so forth. And everyone is basically making the same point about how uh, these products shouldn't be shouldn't be taxed because we can't move the product. We can't move the product quickly enough. Meaning, they can't move the production. The production is is yes. embedded in China. Those networks it, are where they are. It the supports moment. jobs in the United mm -hmm. States. And then, to your point, if if we have to pay these taxes, these tariffs. It's, it's tariffs that we pay. And so this gets to the uh, – it's a question that a lot of people – and I have another sticker that says we pay the tariffs, mm -hmm. which, it, which is basically when, it, when, the, when a product comes across the border, when it's entered into a port, the importer, whoever is the importer of record, they pay the tariff. So if it's the, the, the retailer that you're buying your, your product from, they're the ones paying the tariff. Sure. That's money that has to be paid, has to go to the U.S. government, and it and it's got to come from somewhere. Because the goods aren't released until it's paid. The goods right? aren't released until it's paid, so it comes from somewhere. And where does it come from? It comes from payroll. It comes from um, maybe other items. They were gonna they were gonna introduce some new innovations or some design elements that they can't no longer do. Um, perhaps they'll just stop producing certain products. Um, we we refer to this as a existential event. And it's existential because there are some products that will literally disappear, some low-end, low-value products that are just no longer – it makes sense to make them. So they just won't be made anymore. And so who's going to be hurt by that? Well, consumers at the value end of the equation because they won't be able to find items that they could find before. They'll just go away. And the other thing that will go away are companies. And we heard some very compelling testimony from some companies that have been around for 100 years saying, if, if you make me pay 25 percent on everything that I'm making, because everything that I make is in China, because I've been doing it for so long, right, that's been built up, I can't afford it. I can't pass mm -hmm. that price along because I'm at the value end. I, my consumer won't pay an extra 25% more, so I can't pass it along. I can't get my suppliers to pay that cost. It's got to come from somewhere, and so I'll have to go out of business. And Talk that's what you hear people say there. Talk about unraveling. Yeah, it's 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 a very emotional response that you get from some of these companies that are seeing, you know, families that their that their parents, that their grandparents, in some cases their great grandparents started, are under this threat. How often can a company in that situation go back to the Chinese manufacturer in this case and say, "Can you give me a break on price?" Well, to offset the tariff. Let's let's look at what we're asking the Chinese manufacturer to do. We want to make sure that they employ people responsibly, that they're in safe buildings, that they're using sustainable materials, using sustainable practices. Right? So we're already asking them to do a lot of things and say what you want about China, but a lot of the companies that are there have really accepted and embraced 
those requirements as part of their competitive advantage. We've got these very yes. efficient supply chains. And this chains. was built over a long period of time. It's, it's, it's exactly We're treating years. these tariffs like a light switch. Right. And the fact is you have relationships that have been built up. We heard about this from in the other direction from Blake Hurst, who talked about farmers and, and farm co-ops who cultivated relationships with their customers in China. Blake over, Hurst is the head of the Missouri Farm sure, yeah, over, yeah, over years and years. Yeah. And all of a sudden, somebody flips the light switch and your product's too expensive. This, right. is, this is a disruption. And, and, and nothing's free here, okay? Right. And so then what happens is then you, so, um, you know, the other option I think people are looking at and exploring is can they move these supply chains to other countries, you know, Vietnam, Bangladesh. I mean, pe people ask actually, can you move them back to the United States? W we don't have the capacity here in the U.S. to do it. I mean, you're talking about moving an industry back and not just our industry. You're talking about moving the toy industry and the electronic industry. So all these industries moving back at the same time. It's well, like, we're at full employment. Let's the four of us all try to walk out that door at the same time and see what happens. <laughs> it's not going to occur, right? And and so you, you, you run into these problems. Um, but nevertheless, people are looking at other options. They're sort of looking at the tea leaves. It's going to be difficult to stay in China over the medium term. So maybe I can reduce my exposure a little bit or a lot. And so people are looking at those things. What happens if the trade war is gone, right? So it's gone and then you walk back into the factory that you abandoned for, you know, you were with for 10 years and you abandoned them. You come back in five years later. Not, not only do they not want to take your phone call, but your competitor is in the factory that you trained. So that's not a good thing. Have a lot of your members been moving to other locations anyway because Chinese uh, wage rates have been going up irrespective of anything Trump has yeah, done? Yeah, and, and that's that's a natural evolutionary thing. I mean, our, our industry, whether you're looking at the footwear side or the apparel side, has evolved and moved over time. I mean, it, you know, if I go back long enough, you know, it, it, it moved through the United States and go back to Europe. From Massachusetts know, then to, 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 to the, the Carolinas. South, to yeah. The Carolinas and, and so forth. So there, there has been a long-term trend for or diversification away from China. What's interesting is is footwear. Um, you know, I've been with my association for a little more than twenty years or so, and footwear has largely been at the eighty to ninety percent, and it's been dropping consistently. But over a twenty year period, it's now dropped to about seventy percent. I think was the number we talked about earlier. Apparel, on the other hand, as you as you went through a lot of the trade changes over the last twenty years, free trade agreements the removal of a quota system that yes. limited the amount of product that you could ship, um, China becoming a member of the WTO, Vietnam becoming a member of the WTO, um, the um, the emergence of e-commerce and speed to market and, and consumers that want products delivered mm -hmm. to their house before they even order them online. As you've started to look at that, you've seen um, apparel grow and then begin to sort of move out of out of China, grow into Vietnam and so forth. So you've seen a lot of changes in where we get our products. Sure. And, and there's a lot of different kinds of apparel. Fast fashion is different than sort of basics, right. underwear and socks or whatever. Now, I would think on the tariffs, it may have something to do with demand elasticities too. If, if you're a Chinese manufacturer and you're making $300 coats uh, and you're going to add 25% of that, I'm inclined to think somebody's going to buy a $300 coat will probably be willing to pay $350 or $360 for it anyway. So there, you can probably pass it on. 
and which tells me kind of it's the low end of your of your of your spectrum that really gets hit the hardest. Right, but you still may see some price increases on the low end. I mean, and, but let me let me kind of walk you through how this is inflationary in so many different ways. So look at the two numbers I gave you before, and I'll add a third one. So forty two percent for apparel, seventy percent for footwear, eighty two percent for backpacks, luggage, things like that. Mm-hmm. That's in China. Okay, so I'm putting a 25% tariff on the number one supplier for those three general product categories. Okay, so that's 25% up. All of their competitors, they now realize, well, I can raise my prices 5%, 10%, 15%. And if they don't do that to be opportunistic, they do it because as people start to migrate out of China, they go into those other countries. And now you've got bumper car inflation where they're starting to bid up the prices in those other countries because of capacity. So that's just our industry. And that same thing is now happening in toys, electronics, food, a lot of other places. On top of that, don't forget, the Chinese are retaliating also. So instead of, and, and it's not just the apparel that we produce coming in China coming and having a higher price, but the cotton that we export to China, that's getting whacked as well with a tariff. With their retaliation. With their yeah. retaliation. So we're finding we're paying going into China and then we're paying coming out of China. So we're getting hit two different times. There are so many anomalies here that make it interesting. We, I think we may have talked about this before when, when the president put tariffs on washing machines, mm-hmm. which was not part of the China thing. It was a safeguard thing that he did in 2018. There's now data coming in. And one of the things that amused me was that while the average price of a washer washing machine has gone up $86, yes. the average price of dryers has gone up $92, even though there are no tariffs on dryers. Right. So it's sort of optimi- – uh, people know that you usually buy both of them together. It's a sympathetic thing. It's an, op- thing. It's an opportunity. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's sympathetic to the consumer, but it's an opportunistic it's not uh, to the consumer at all. Uh, increase. So, But you're exactly right. Other people were going to take advantage of, of – of the basically the opportunity to raise their prices and get some of the additional money. Right. And then when it, when it translates down to the consumer, so um, I don't recall the proposal that everyone gets a 25% pay increase. I haven't seen that come out Definitely, yet. Definitely. That's so, not come out recently. It's a Republican administration, Steve. You're not going to see that. Okay. Them. So that's, that's not going to come. So, so everyone's got the same available dollars, but now they're, they're going to be spending on product that is all going up in price in one form or another. And so, you know, so not only might I lose sales because my product is more expensive, but I might lose sales because everybody else's product is more expensive and there's no money left over to now, buy that pair of jeans. Tell me, what, how big do you think this ends up being? Let's assume he does it, okay? How big does this end up being politically? You know, I'm thinking, so my T-shirt is going to go from – you know, nine ninety five to you know eleven forty five or eleven forty nine. Am I really going to get upset enough to change my vote over that, or is there a cumulative effect of if everything I buy is going to go up twenty five percent? It's going to have an impact. I'm trying to figure out if this is a politically as volatile as some people think it is. You know, that's one of the things we're we're trying to figure out. I mean, obviously, you you if you look at the last eighteen months, you see. Um, a lot of volatility in the stock market. And I've, I've seen some studies that kind of um, track, you know, some of the president's tweets to, you know, when you see some of the activity up and down. Um, so clearly there's a, there's a relationship between that. Um, that affects people's sense of whether they feel wealthy or not sure. and whether they feel that they're, you know, so do I need to save more because, you know, my portfolio is now not doing so well. Um, and then as as you begin to see these price increases um, creep in, you know, you have to remember a lot of the a lot of the tariffs that have been 
washing machines notwithstanding, that have been imposed so far. If you look at not only the China 301 tariffs, but also these steel and aluminum tariffs we've heard so much about and some of the other ones, a lot of those tariffs have been on inputs. Intermediate goods. Intermediate goods. Right. So they've, they've made it more expensive for you to do things here if you're using inputs, but they haven't been as much on the finished product. And the administration has largely been taking finished products off the list. Again, you know, wallets and backpacks and, you know, baseball gloves and things like that notwithstanding. This last tranche is almost entirely consumer goods. Why? Because almost all the consumer goods have been off the list before. Right. That's, that's and, what's left. And so, so you're going to start to see some of the tariffs from before still working their way through the economy. I think that's still going to be happening. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe maybe not so much because of the steel and aluminum relief for Mexico and Canada. So that might have some impact. And then you're going to now start to see the, the goods coming in, the finished goods coming in, hitting with a higher tariff. And eventually, those yes. tariffs have to be paid. And, and you know, you- But it, it's really complicated and it's hard to find. I mean, we, the, the, the example of the small businessman who had the machine that arrived with a big tariff on it, right. he simply didn't hire a couple of new employees. Right. But there's no record of those employees not being hired. Nobody nobody keeps track of that statistic. But that was the that was the fact. Well, In order was, to pay the, the tariffs, he couldn't hire people. There was a fellow at the hearing today um, that was testifying, and he said that you know he got hit. He he's he he's in list three and list four. His goods got hit on list three, and as a result of them getting hit on list three, they had to they had to let people go in the first time in the history of their company. And you know, so list four will be even more of that, so more of that. So their decision is we can't raise the price for these particular products. And so the way they had to resolve that was people lost their jobs. So what's your prediction about what's going to happen uh, with Trump and Xi Jinping? Well, uh, I haven't looked at my Twitter uh, feed in, in a, <laughs> 20 minutes. So I, Fair I, enough. Um, look, I, I think you know both sides say they want to reach a deal. Right. Um, and I, I, I take both sides at their word. I think there is probably also politics that might favor both sides wanting to let this drag on a little bit longer, you know, to, 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 to seem tough. You know, you want to yeah, be- you can see But as you ways. said, when it really starts to hurt American consumers, in addition to all the other people that you talked about, you know, maybe this isn't such good politics back home here. Right. You know, as it begins to affect the economics um, that we have here, you know, I think you, the, the president might feel some pressure to to reach a deal. I think, you know, he feels that that's the case in China, that the that the that the Chinese government is beginning to feel the pressure there too. And eventually, I mean, eventually that pressure will will merge to create a deal. Whether that deal is this, you know, the end of next week or whether that deal is later on. I think one of the things we may see next week um, is um, a truce. You know, you could see another truce where they both yeah. decide to kind of Return kick the to can, the negotiating yes, table. Kick and, the can down right, the road yes, a little exactly. bit. Exactly. That's, that's what we've been predicting. Bill, right. isn't he putting himself, isn't Trump putting himself in a tough position though? Because, you know, He's going to be hearing back home here from uh, Joe Biden that the consumer is going to be getting hit hard at Walmart, right? And then on the other hand, if he even shows any weakness or caving towards the Chinese, he's given in to the Chinese, which is a big part of his you know, bravado towards his base, which is I've stood up to the Chinese. So he's in kind of a tough position, well, isn't he? Exactly. I think uh, I think the Democrats are salivating about this. If he postpones, he just kicks the can until some later date. But ultimately, he's faced with exactly the dilemma that you've described. He can make a deal, uh, which will probably be less than he wants. 
uh, and which takes the Democrats will say soft on China, poor negotiator, or he can impose the tariffs, escalate. It's the only tool that he seems to know, in which case they say you caused enormous amount of damage. All these people are going to go out of business, as Steve was just talking about, and you've produced nothing. You know, we have no agreement. We have no gain. Um, I think he's in a corner on this. Now, what I think he will do is pick door number one, which is take a deal, any deal, and then say it's the greatest one ever. Beautiful deal. And beautiful deal. Luxurious. And, and hope <laughs> hope nobody notices. Now, this then raises an interesting timing question. I think if he were really, I don't think he can do this, but if he were smart about it, he would drag this on for a year so that he makes the deal so close to the election that nobody, that nobody, it. That nobody knows it's terrible until after the election. Right, sure. Um, if he makes a deal now or in the next three or four months, you know, it, it'll be, be a big to, market bump when it happens, of course. Yes. Everybody will be very excited. But you'll be able to check whether the deal works a year and whether later, they Yes. Right. A year yeah. later, you'll see the flaws in the deal. You'll see Chinese cheating, which I think is very likely. And he's going to be talking about more tariffs. And the Democrats are going to say, all this stuff you did accomplished nothing. I think he's vulnerable on it. Interesting. Scott, any comment on that? What a mess. The beat goes on. But of course, that, there'll be another subject for us next week. Absolutely. That's the good news. Steve Lamar, <laughs> thank you for joining the trade guys and enduring our banter and uh, educating us as to what's going on in your world. I love it. Anytime. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.